Irritable bowel syndrome is one of the most common gastrointestinal complaints. Characterized by abdominal pain and bloating and alternating periods of diarrhea and constipation, this chronic condition can go on to cause anxiety, depression, and severely affect the quality of life of a person suffering from it. With no one single identified trigger or treatment, IBS can be a minefield for a person to try and get on top of. Diet changes are one area that can have a positive impact on IBS. And in this podcast, I'll look at the evidence for different approaches from supplements such as peppermint oil, right through to the very promising research on low FODMAP diets. Welcome to the Thinking Nutrition Podcast. My name is Tim Crow, and I'm a career researcher, educator, and science communicator, with most of this spent in the field of nutrition. How do you make sense of so much conflicting information in the field of nutrition? While I don't profess to have all the answers in an area that is continually changing as research changes, you can count on what is covered in this podcast to be based on the whole field of nutrition science, not just selective areas that support a particular way of thinking. And this podcast will always be free from any commercial product tie-ins, endorsements, or advertisements. Just credible nutrition science presented in plain and simple language, and then translating this into what it means for your health. So, on with today's show. Irritable bowel syndrome is a common gastrointestinal disorder affecting up to one in five people. Symptoms of IBS include abdominal bloating, pain, flatulence, diarrhea, and altered bowel habits. The condition can be difficult to diagnose because other conditions share the same symptoms. Currently, there is no specific diagnostic test for IBS. People with IBS report worse quality of life compared to people without IBS, with diet being a key factor impacting their lifestyle. The cause of IBS is unknown, but environmental factors such as changes in routine, emotional stress, infection and diet are all known to trigger an attack. With no definitive cause of IBS, treatment is mostly focused on managing the symptoms. Dietary changes such as increasing the amount of fiber eaten, eliminating problem foods such as gas-producing beans or cabbage, spicy foods, or removing dairy foods and wheat from the diet can work for some people. A range of medications are sometimes prescribed to manage IBS, while stress management techniques can also help some. For a condition that affects so many people, there are few effective treatments that are well supported by scientific evidence. A mini-review paper published in July of 2020 has looked at the evidence base for a range of food supplements and dietary changes as treatment options for IBS. And for this podcast, I'll use this paper as a base to look at the evidence for diet in improving IBS symptoms. So see the show notes to get an open access copy of that review paper. Starting with supplements, the first one I'll look at is aloe vera. Aloe vera is thought to be useful for treating some of the symptoms associated with IBS, such as constipation and diarrhea. 
the anti-inflammatory properties of aloe may help to reduce gastrointestinal inflammation, which can contribute towards IBS symptoms. Aloe vera may also have a prebiotic potential, which can increase the beneficial bifidobacteria in the gut. Four randomized controlled trials have compared how aloe may fare for relieving symptoms of IBS, and taken as a whole, there appears little benefit for it controlling IBS symptoms or improving quality of life. That doesn't mean there is no benefit, as there was a suggestion that it has some level of benefit in at least one of the trials, only that the magnitude of benefit is probably quite small and hard to detect at a level that is statistically significant without running very large trials. So based on this, a small effect normally means that the treatment isn't warranted for widespread use in clinical practice. But even in these trials, some people do well and some people not so well. So everybody's mileage may vary. Another popular supplement is peppermint oil. And here the evidence is more positive. Part of the soothing and calming benefit of peppermint on the gastrointestinal system may come from its menthol content. So is peppermint oil an effective treatment for IBS? To answer this, the findings from 12 randomized controlled trials involving 835 people were combined together in a meta-analysis. The results look promising, with peppermint oil significantly superior to placebo in improving global symptoms of IBS and reducing abdominal pain. Side effects from peppermint oil were minor and transient, with heartburn being the most common problem. For someone who is struggling to manage symptoms of IBS, peppermint oil may be worth considering trying as it appears to be a safe and effective short-term treatment option for IBS. Another emerging treatment for IBS are probiotics. Probiotics may improve IBS symptoms by inducing changes in the gut microbiota and their metabolite production, and they also may interact with the intestinal immune system and the nervous system. Therefore, they may modulate gut motility, inflammation, and gut hypersensitivity. The research field for the use of probiotics in IBS, though, is mixed. There also is not a lot of clarity for which bacterial species and the form they are found in are best to use. A major meta-analysis involving 53 randomized controlled trials has helped to clarify things better. It found that some specific probiotic combinations reduce the risk of persistent IBS symptoms and reduce flatulence, but didn't offer much help for bloating or urgency. Certain single-strain formulations, such as Lactobacillus plantarium DSM 9843, improved IBS symptoms, but other strains of bacteria did not. So for professionals listening, it is very unhelpful to advise somebody with IBS to just take a probiotic without specifying what strain, as many of the effects of probiotics come down to what strain is being trialed and for what condition. Because of the large degree of variation in the studies done so far, there is just not enough clinical trials to build a case for any single probiotic strain or dosage. 
high-quality trials of probiotics in IBS are needed that focus in on just a few select strains. For someone wishing to try probiotics to manage their IBS, consider selecting one product at a time and then monitor the effects and choose a product containing a strain that has some clinical evidence for a benefit in IBS and give the probiotic time to work. A minimum of four weeks at the dose recommended by the manufacturer is advised. The final type of supplement studied was fiber. Fiber modulates the gut microbiota and metabolite production, increases stool bulk by increasing microbial biomass, and regulates gut motility. Most of the evidence here is around soluble fiber, with psyllium fiber supplements the best studied. Supplementation with soluble fiber improves global IBS symptoms and abdominal pain. This is in contrast to when insoluble bulking fiber, such as wheat bran, is used and no benefit is seen. Prebiotic fibers, which is fiber that can be fermented in the gut to confer some level of physiologic benefit, have also been studied. Inulin supplementation, not to be confused with a pancreatic hormone insulin, which is a polymer of the sugar molecule fructose, has been found to increase bifidobacteria concentrations. But it does not improve abdominal pain, bloating, flatulence, or quality of life. And if anything, inulin may in some people lead to some symptoms of IBS, which is a really nice segue to introduce the area of FODMAPs. One emerging dietary treatment for IBS that is gaining a lot of attention is a low FODMAP diet. FODMAP is an acronym for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. So this includes carbohydrates such as lactose, fructose, fructans, which are long chains of fructose molecules like inulin, which I was just talking about, and also sugar alcohols. FODMAPs are found in many foods, including wheat, milk, pears, plums, onions, garlic, and legumes. FODMAPs can be poorly absorbed in some people, leading to their accumulation in the small intestine and passing into the large intestine. Once there, they can draw more water into the bowel, which increases the chance of diarrhea. FODMAPs can also increase gas production from their fermentation by colonic bacteria. These effects of FODMAPs in the bowel explain many of the symptoms reported in IBS. So what does the research say about following a low FODMAP diet and improving IBS? A comprehensive 2018 systematic review of seven randomized controlled trials showed a reduction in global IBS symptoms through following a low FODMAP diet, and I'll link to this study in the show notes. The largest placebo-controlled randomized controlled trial in 104 people with IBS showed that 57% of people on the low FODMAP diet reported adequate symptom relief from IBS. That was compared to just 38% of people in the control group who got some benefit. With the low FODMAP diet leading to greater improvements in abdominal pain, bloating, flatulence, urgency, and stool consistency. 
Despite the clinical benefits of the low FODMAP diet, a potentially negative impact on the gut microbiota is a concern. Beneficial bifida bacteria concentrations are lower when someone is following a low FODMAP diet, which is most likely due to reduced consumption of fermentable carbohydrates. The impact of the low FODMAP diet on the gut microbiota is only one of the challenges. The low FODMAP diet is complex to follow and may lead to lower fiber, iron, and calcium intakes. Extensive food knowledge and label reading are required to identify suitable foods, and it is why it is advised to seek education and support from a dietitian for anyone considering trialing a low FODMAP diet. The small number of clinical trials using low FODMAP diets to treat IBS so far have shown a favorable benefit. But whether such diets offer a superior benefit over traditional management advice for IBS is unclear. This is where some interesting research has been done. Testing a low FODMAP diet head-to-head against traditional management advice for IBS, Swedish researchers recruited 75 people who met the criteria for IBS. Each person was randomly allocated to follow a low FODMAP diet for four weeks or they received traditional advice. And I'll link to the study in the show notes. The traditional advice in the trial consisted of having regular small meals and having less caffeine, spicy foods, fat and alcohol, as well as restricting problem foods such as onions, cabbage and beans. Neither group were told what the label of the dietary advice was to help reduce a potential placebo effect by using the word FODMAP, as it now has some traction for the general public. So what did the study find? Both diet groups saw a drop in IBS symptoms with no significant difference in symptom reduction between the two groups. Food diaries showed good adherence to the dietary advice given in both groups. What was interesting about the study was that the two diet groups were not mutually exclusive. Some of the foods that are recommended to be eaten less of as part of traditional advice to manage IBS are also low in FODMAPs. This raises the possibility that combining elements of each approach might further reduce symptoms of IBS. IBS is a complex condition which appears to have a large degree of individual differences in what foods can trigger it. Results from this small trial show that no one fixed approach will work for everyone, but there is merit in taking the principles behind the spectrum of dietary options and adapting to what works for the individual. And finally, we have a gluten-free diet and how that could improve IBS. So far, there are only a small number of clinical trials with very inconsistent evidence. Although gluten-containing diets may induce symptoms in some people with IBS, it is unclear which components in wheat may be the cause, because wheat foods also contain, guess what, FODMAPs. So a gluten-free diet could just be a subset of a low FODMAP diet by default. And finally, taking a path away from diet, one novel psychological therapy that has been recently evaluated for the management of IBS is mindfulness. 
IBS has many triggers, and apart from food, stress and psychological factors are thought to be one of them. Mindfulness training can be described as learning to pay attention to the present moment and to let thoughts and feelings come and go without providing judgment. The brain and gut have close neural connections, so learning to manage stress and emotions may also help calm an overactive gut. Putting mindfulness to the test in a clinical trial, 75 adult women with IBS took part in an eight-week study with the results published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology, which I'll link to in the show notes. Each woman was randomly assigned to either weekly mindfulness training sessions or a support group for IBS sufferers, so this served as the control group. The mindfulness training included lessons on meditation, general yoga postures, and body scanning, in which people focused their attention on a specific body area to detect muscle tension and other sensations. By the end of the study, women in the mindfulness group showed marked reductions in reported IBS severity by 24%, compared to just a 6% reduction in women in the support group. This improvement persisted up to three months after the study ended. Measures of quality of life, psychological distress and anxiety were not significantly different between the groups at the end of the eight-week study, but by three months, the differences were significant and in favor of the mindfulness treatment group. Now, I'm profiling the study to show how complex IBS is, and there are many avenues that deserve merit in considering for someone self-treating their condition. So let's wrap all this up. As a gastroenterologist once said to me, IBS is code for we don't know, and that is a fair call to make, as the underlying causes of IBS can be so varied. And it is, after all, a syndrome, which is a group of symptoms which consistently occur together. And in the case of IBS, the underlying disease isn't known. Diet and lifestyle is one place to start. And it is where dietary strategies shown to improve IBS include peppermint oil, certain probiotic formulations, psyllium supplements, first-line IBS dietary recommendations such as avoiding trigger foods like spicy foods and caffeine, and finally a low FODMAP diet. Because it is unlikely one dietary strategy will benefit everybody with IBS, then it may be a matter of trialing different approaches. This is where getting professional help and support from a dietitian can help, especially with the more involved approaches such as a low FODMAP diet. So that's it for today's show. You can find the show notes either in the app you're listening to this podcast on if it supports it or else head over to my webpage at thinkingnutrition.com.au and click on the podcast section to find this episode to read the show notes. If you find this podcast of value, then please consider sharing it with your friends and colleagues or maybe even leave a review. This all helps increase the ranking and reach of the podcast, which means a big win for credible evidence-based nutrition messages while helping to dilute out the crazy and making the world a slightly less confusing place. I'm Tim Crow, and you've been listening to Thinking Nutrition. Nutrition.